0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University, a science communicator, and a funk musician. I'm very excited today to be speaking with Anton Howes, a historian of innovation and author of Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation. This book is a wonderful tour through the nearly 300 year history of the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, which is Britain's national improvement society and has touched all aspects of the country's life and that of the world from art to education to science, commerce, patents, postage, the environment, and so much more. Anton is the historian in residence at the RSA, the head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network, and a wonderful individual. Anton, thank you for joining me today to speak about Arts and Minds.
2: Thanks very much, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: Just to start, I'd love if you could briefly describe your background as a historian and how you came to write this book about the Society of Arts.
2: That's a great question. So I started as a historian being interested, I guess, in economic growth. Um, So I guess more of a an economist or an economic historian, um, but increasingly found myself drawn towards what it is that drives inventors, innovators. Um, So when I did my PhD thesis, one of the chapters um, was about the kinds of institutions that inventors were creating to promote invention further, and particularly prize-giving institutions. And the Society of Arts in its first 100 years was one of those kinds of institutions where essentially um, in its first 100 years, uh, it would pool the money from its members to then give to non-patented inventions, and so the the list of people who've received those in- inventions was itself something that was of great interest. You know, who are the kinds of people that would submit inventions to the Society of Arts, especially given they weren't allowed to commercialize it using uh, the patent system. But also, as the kind of institution, it's interesting as the kind of institution that inventors were setting up to promote innovation uh, further. And from from there, I was commissioned by the RSA uh, to write because they were looking for a new history. And so I ended up writing uh, that history for them.
0: Wonderful. Well, this is an excellent history and it does touch on a lot of the interest that you were describing in the history of innovation, of economics. Not only does this book have a lot of great information about the history of the RSA as an organization, but I, I actually found that I uh, enjoyed a great deal of the parts where I was learning just about British history and European history in general, about mercantilism and the financial system and how um, how those things were developed. So maybe we'll start just by getting this on the table. What exactly is the Royal Society of Arts?
2: Yeah, that's actually probably the hardest question. And to be honest, even towards the end of writing the book, I wasn't entirely sure. <laughs> uh, the reason for that is because it has done a lot of very extremely different things. And yet, all of those things are somehow tied together. And I think the only way I've, I've found to really get around, you know, to try and draw together all these really disparate themes, you know, I'm, to give you an, just a re, uh, listeners uh, an example of just how disparate. In the 1990s, it was involved with, for example, putting contemporary art contemporary sculptures on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. In the 18th century, it was giving prizes for. Find, you know, opening a new cobalt mine or to young people for drawing prizes for to improve their design skills. In the 19th century, it was involved with the Great Exhibition of 1851, the very first of the World's Fairs. In the 1960s, it was spearheading the British environmentalist movement, actually getting it going for the first time in the 1920s. It was involved with the preservation of medieval and Tudor cottages. I mean, the more I wrote of the book, the more I was thinking, you know, how on earth is this all going to fit together into a single narrative? Um, And as you say, a lot of it is is about trying to work out that much broader uh, context. And so the, the, the thing I've settled upon that draws all of it together, I think, is that the Society of Arts is Britain's national improvement agency it's a voluntary subscription funded semi-official it's got the royal in the title It's really a voluntary organization but it has that gravitas but ultimately it's a national improvement agency um, and frankly in anything and everything if something can be improved then it's game and when it does do some kind of improvement what it then does is it moves on to something else sometimes even changing the whole way that the organization is structured the way that it works
0: it sounds like nothing was outside of the remit of what the Royal Society of Arts thought was open to improvement. That's one of the great, I guess, aspects of the fun of the entire thing. Maybe you can speak just a little bit about how the society was first funded, who the um, the, the founders were, how they met each other, and what its very initial purpose was in terms of granting premiums or funding projects that kind of existed on the margins of society and might not otherwise have a voice or a platform?
2: So the initial idea comes out of, I guess, a gap that you've ha- you'd had organizations like the Royal Society, much earlier things, set up in the 1660s for the promotion of what we would now call science, right? So natural philosophy at the time. So our understanding of how the world works. But part of that remit had also been, how do you apply science towards useful ends, to the improvement of living standards, you know, solving, uh, uh, curing medicines, solving all sorts of other problems as well. Um, but by the early 18th century, it was widely felt that the Royal Society had focused purely on the understanding, you know, collection of data and coming up with scientific theories and so on, but not on the application side of things. Uh, So actually translating scientific knowledge into new inventions was where something seemed to be lacking. And so the Society of Arts comes out of, I mean, there are actually a few other projects, a few other attempts at forming things that are called actually sometimes also a Society of Arts, because arts in those days doesn't mean fine art painting sculpture, although that is included within the definition. Arts is actually a much more general term. Um, Think of artifice you know so the arts of man so there's you've got nature and you've got arts so the royal society was about the study of nature um the way the world works and the society of arts was set up to fill that gap to be um something that's all about what's man-made or or what, what what humans can do technology effectively so a lot of the founders are people who are inventors you've actually got a few people who are themselves fellows of the royal society um so essentially, scientists who felt that lack and thought that they needed another organization with very specific remit to do that. But when they start it, the idea is that they have one person, one vote. It becomes a it starts off as a direct democracy. Um, and so the person who comes up with the project, a guy called William Shipley, he essentially creates an organization over which he has pretty much no control straight away because He ends up just being the secretary taking the minutes of the meetings. Um, And I guess he could have had a bit of a role there. But ultimately, if you stood up at the meeting and you gave a case as to what kind of prize should be awarded, what they should be doing with the accumulated fund based on all of their subscriptions put together, then if the rest of the society voted that in, then that's what they would do. And so that's why I think, especially to begin with, you have so many different types of projects so many different kinds of prizes so many different kinds of uh, things that are being rewarded and what that also means is that in some ways the society of arts because it's based in london and because it's for the time relatively expensive i mean it's ultimately middle and upper classes are the people contributing towards it who are actually able to afford two guineas a year or 20 guineas for life to become a member these people um, are essentially london's elites the commercial political elites the civil servants the politicians the top merchants the top manufacturers and tradesmen and so the kinds of things that the society chooses to do you can sometimes read into it as being a bit like a kind of poll of what of what those elites were worried about the kinds of things that they thought needed improving so you've got prizes for planting trees which you think oh maybe that's to do with environmentalism far from it it's planting trees so that you can have enough uh, wood for shipbuilding for the navy for Britain's wooden walls, as they were called. So it's very much a matter of national defence. Or you might have, in the 1760s, you've got uh, prizes for things that support the slave trade, because you know the kinds of things that they would trade to Africa in exchange for slaves to then take across the Atlantic. And yet later on, when the elite's opinions have generally started to shift, You also end up with lots of premiums that are abolitionists that have these aims of trying to reduce the use of slaves and actually get rid of the the, the system. So, the Society of Arts over that period has this very complicated history. and Unfortunately, we we don't always know who's proposing these prizes, but it gives you a general sense of what the majority thought.
0: Yeah, maybe we can clarify just very quickly, because this is a point of confusion that I certainly experienced. There's the Royal Society, now, the Royal Society was a scientific society that that is associated with people like Rob, Robert Hook and Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle, yeah, uh, Christopher Rand and Robert Boyle, and that was the first society that kind of was dedicated to the pursuit of science. Now, this is different. This is we now call it the Royal Society of Arts, but initially it did not have that royal royal charter. It was just the Society of Arts. And in many ways, it was very um, different, it sounds like, from the other maybe learned societies. Uh, it, it it was more democratic, it sounds like. You mentioned the direct democracy. Um, it was more... Uh, It allowed women into its institutions. Mm. Even the actual physical arrangement of the space where people met was meant to kind of promote this idea of democracy. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about how the organization of the society itself was markedly different from its very uh, inception from maybe the other kind of learned elite societies of London.
2: Yeah. So ultimately, it's not a learned society. And that's where actually a lot of confusion comes in. Um, I sort of mentioned this in the book, that they only start adopting the royal from 1908. They have a royal charter from early on, but all that really does is incorporate the organisation. So before then, it's just essentially an unincorporated society of just people who are contributing. And so it's not really a learner society. And that's where the use of fellow from the early 20th century also becomes confusing, because you think that members are becoming members because they've done something that admits them to this prestigious thing in the same way that to be a fellow of the Royal Society, you are probably a very famous scientist of some sort, right, or natural philosopher. But to become a member of the Society of Arts, it doesn't actually matter. It's actually all about intentions. And so from from the very beginning, the reason, for example, that women are allowed in from the very beginning is that William Shipley says, I see no reason why women would be any less patriotic than anyone else. Patriotism in those days, meaning just public spiritedness. Uh, Nation first, I suppose, but also can potentially be universe, more universalist than that. For In the 18th century context, it's much more limit, limited as to what universal really means. Um, and it's only later on that it gets expanded to the population of the entire globe. But even then, you know, the idea that he has there is that he sees no reason why anyone should be excluded unless they're a sort of troublemaker, you know, the only people who are going to be kept out are the sorts of people who aren't actually doing it with the right intentions. Um, So the better description of them, and to the extent that there are a few kinds of societies that are similar, is that they're not learned societies, they're patriotic societies, they're they're local improvement societies or national improvement societies. Um, So I think that's really the key difference. And yeah, it's, it's, it's good that you point out the difference between... Uh, the different societies there that actually one of the problems with royal is that in in trying to make themselves sound more to have more distinction they actually make themselves less mm. distinctive right because there are so many different royal societies
0: yeah there's um yeah it's it's interesting you speak about that kind of motivation that that patriotism but it's not like a necessarily militaristic or jingoistic mm-hmm. nationalistic kind of country first type of patriotism. It's a desire to have one's um, actions and pursuits kind of serve the better interest of the country. It's a kind of utilitarian um, move to make make one's work actually beneficial to other people instead perhaps of kind of lazing around all day. And that definitely relates to that idea of um, prizing the importance of of, um, artisanal craft making manufacturing that kind of uh, inventors prizing the work of those people maybe above the i don't know landed aristocracy or the people who just kind of sit around and and think all day and i suppose that was the purpose of granting these premiums these grants essentially that they would give to people and i was delighted to learn people of all ages you have these inventions from you know teenagers and and kids their art being funded um so, so my understanding, maybe you can take us through the process of how a person in the early days of the Society of Arts their work might be granted one of these premiums. Essentially, that was its role. It was a it was an organization to give these premiums to work that otherwise would maybe not have gone recognized. If we're a maybe you could describe the layout of the room where this where this activity takes place and how. Yeah, how some of these uh, projects might get funded, and maybe if you can remember any particularly interesting ones from maybe the first century or so of its existence, some of the more wacky uh, things that were, were given, given these grants.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing you'd do, or the first thing you'd probably be aware of, is that the society would typically have a bunch of... Pr- uh, basically advertised premiums. They would have decided at their meetings that there were certain things they wanted to prioritize. And so they would publish an advertisement often in newspapers or as pamphlets saying, you know, if you submit, let's say, and this is a real one, uh, a way of manufacturing hogs bristles, you know, for brushes that's cheaper than those that are imported from Russia or from Prussia uh, by this date, then you could get, let's say, I can't remember exactly what it actually is, but something like 10 guineas, 20 guineas. Usually the the most expensive ones would be 50 or 100 guineas or potentially an honorary medal of some sort. So you might see that and then you might then write in and often you'd have to get testimonials from other people, maybe your local clergyman, maybe your neighbours, maybe some of your competitors or customers saying... That they've seen the invention at work. That what your your the claims you're making about it are true. You might get invited by a committee of the society to come and demonstrate your invention. Uh, so if you're one of these young people who's submitting prizes for design by you know, children under a certain age or teenagers under a certain age, uh, then you might be judged by a committee of some of the best artists in the country. You know people like uh, Joshua Reynolds or. Uh, William Hogarth on stage or another. Um, and then after the judging takes place, and by the way, the committees of the society were completely voluntary as well. If you were a member of the society, you could turn up to whatever committee you wanted. Um, they would meet on a different day, often just in a different coffee house or in a tavern, um, sometimes in a field, depending on the sorts of activities they were judging, uh, to then look over these things and then make their judgment. And then they would recommend to the society as a whole whether or not to award the premium to you. And then if you did win the premium, so you might get a first place or a second place, perhaps, you know, they might even recognise where you've come close, but haven't quite actually won um, or, or, gone or 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 gone succeeded at, at, at meeting the advertisement's requirements. Then you would have a prize giving in what would eventually become the Great Room. So from the 1770s, they've been in the building that they're still in today. And the Great Room is essentially this huge room. And initially, it would have had... Horseshoe shaped benches, uh, better as you, I think you mentioned this earlier, better for the uh, uh, people to debate with one another. Also, less antagonistic than parliament, where people are directly facing one another. You know, one party on one side, another party on the other. The society of us is supposed to bring all of all the all of the different parties together for the common public good, without there being any any party divisions or factions. Not that that always worked. <laughs> Um, and then you 'd have a prize giving then the president or some other celebrity would would help give out these prizes and it would be a big fancy event and eventually they start doing it as an annual event it becomes one of the major things where to you know, to, to to see and be seen um, and so that 's one way is that you might respond to these adver- these advertisements and though increasingly what they also do is they start they start allowing people to submit inventions or improvements uh, unsolicited uh, a, a a series of well, a, a part of the premium system that they, that they call bounties. That is, if you, you know, I've just come up with an invention, let's say the the lifeboat, Henry Greathead comes up with a way of the unsubmergible boat, what we now call the lifeboat, and he submits it to the society unsolicited for a reward. Um, he's, he, he commits to the fact that it won't be patented, um, which was one of their conditions. And the committee, again, will judge it and work out whether or not to give him that prize. The other thing to mention, though, as well, is you, you, you talked about how sometimes you get people from all ages or particularly very poor people going, you know, who might not be able to afford a patent, but are going for these much more, uh, these, these smaller but still quite significant cash prizes. But also oft, often the Society of Arts was also trying to involve people from the upper classes. So the honorary medals, they're not worth much in terms of money, but they are potentially worth quite a lot in terms of honour. You know, for you to be a duke who or an earl, let's say, who wins a prize that's also been won earlier by a duke and will be handed to you by a prince or a duke who might be the president of the society, they always try to choose the person with the highest rank to be their president for the prize givings, Uh, then that's quite a significant thing as well. And so money may not have that impact on a gentleman, um, but a honorary prize might.
0: there's um it's so amazing there's just a list of examples that you profile uh in the book of um, all the different inventions there are some great photographs my personal favorite for what it's worth mm-hmm. is this uh, improved uh, chimney sweeping mechanism before this was invented before there was a technological solution children had to climb into the chimneys and suspend themselves inside and get all dirty and often succumb to injury or death but then uh, it looks like a faction of the Royals uh, of the Society of Arts founded and I'm going to read this in full because it really just tickled me uh, and illustrates a a great phenomenon that you discuss in this book namely just how unwieldy some of the names of these committees and societies can become so I'm going to read this here the Society for superseding the necessity of climbing boys by encouraging a new method of sweeping chimneys and for improving the condition of children and others employed by chimney sweepers. That's the name yeah. of the organization tasked with uh, figuring out a technical technical solution to this, uh, to this chimney sweeping problem. And as you say, the whole point is it's, it's a society dedicated to improvement. There is nothing that is uh, outside the realm in the eyes of the um, society of art to be improved, including as you discuss the, um, the patent uh, system itself. Uh, That was a very interesting passage in the book where you described the reforms that were made to the patent system because, as you mentioned, a lot of the people who were um, seeking or winning premiums from the Society of Arts couldn't afford to set up a patent. I'm wondering if you could describe just the kind of um, Sisyphean complexity of getting a patent before these reforms and how some members of the Society of Arts were able to help uh, reform that process?
2: Yeah, so the patent system wasn't really a system. Um, all it, what had happened was that essentially it had started off in the 16th century as being, being basically a kind of privilege granted by the monarch with a bit of regulation in the 1620s, the Act of, uh, the Act of Monopolies, um, to try and reduce any abuses to that system by the monarch. Um, but otherwise isn't really a system. It's a th- sort of thing that evolves over time. It, it recognises improvements. Um, the way it works is sometimes reflected in the way that common law over the court cases to do with the patent system have evolved. But ultimately, it's a very, very expensive thing. And then by, and so by the 1850s, you're having to go through the process that's essentially kind of, you know, you're having to pay various different, what would have originally been bribes, and have, have, but turn into official payments. To all sorts of different officials, you know, to get this and this paper stamped and that paper stamped and this thing sealed. There's the deputy chaff wax. Um, I can't even remember half of the other offices, but essentially there's a something like 30 something different stages that you have to go through, uh, which is actually extremely costly, not just in the money itself to pay for the patent, but even just the time cost of, you know, coming, going out of your way to come down to London. You might not even live in London. Um, and go through the process of going to all of these offices, waiting upon different officials and getting all these things stamped until you finally get the thing. And so the cost of a patent was quite huge. Typically, if you were to obtain one, you probably have to get an investor to actually help you purchase this thing in the first place to actually get that temporary monopoly, typically in those days for 14 years. Um, and so one of the reasons I think that the Society of Arts doesn't allow patented inventions Um, Well, I mean, part of the reason is that they, because it's so expensive to get them, they figure that anything that's going to be patented is probably worth quite a lot anyway. And so there's actually an incentive to invent those things in any case. Hmm. Um, And so what they want to do is create a parallel system that complements that system. So you've got lots of things that have commercial viability that are maybe worth a patent, but there's also lots of inventions that aren't. Safety improvements for workers, for consumers. Um, which may not be patentable uh, inventions, but may be things that are great for the public good, things that we actually want. Safety improvements when it comes to saving the lives of shipwrecked mariners, for example, there's quite a few naval improvements like that. All the sorts of things that are tweaks to things that are improvements but aren't necessarily patentable at all because they're involved in um, the improvement of the Royal Naval Dockyards or things like semaphore systems, signalling systems between ships. Um, or it's just things that are trivial um, and they might get a bounty, but there's sort there's still something that you want to reward because once you reward them, if you're rewarded a prize, um, then you typically have to submit a model that can be that's held by the society and displayed in, in its repository for people to come in and have a go at, have a look at it. And they'll also publish the details, the plan of that invention. But what happens is by the eighteen fifties, the membership of the society has shifted a bit. It has quite a lot more utilitarians who are trying to actually reform systems. So whereas the the premiums were essentially, you know, giving awards to particular inventions, they're looking at ways to have these sort of broader systemic changes, you know, to actually change the way that invention works as a whole in the country. And the patent system becomes one of those uh, main ways of um, uh, trying to change that. And so, the 1852 patent reform, um, that law is essentially pretty much written by the campaigners for the Society of Arts. And what it does is it takes away all of those 30 odd steps that you have to go through. Um, partially, by the way, promoted by one of the Society's more famous members, Charles Dickens, who writes a kind of short story right. called the, uh, the The Poor Man's Tale of a Patent, where, where it sure. goes through. It takes basically takes a very dry policy paper list of all of these um, way, these things you have to do and turns it into a short story where you follow this poor inventor trying to actually go through this process um, and declaring at the end, you know, I'll be, I, I, I don't want to be chaff waxed or whatever anymore, you know. So it gets this popular support from these sorts of reformers and essentially they, they adopt a system that's much more fit for purpose where it actually is about promoting invention, making patenting very cheap making it mm. something that, where you just follow the steps and you get this thing. It's more like a right than a privilege, which is what it mm. evolved out of.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash nbn50 to get
0: 50% off. Yeah, I think that's it's just a great example of what the Society of Arts, what what kind of its purpose was and how it applied in practical terms its vision to to be kind of a patriotic serving the people, serving the inventor's institution. A lot of your discussion of what happened in the society in the mid-19th century, especially Focuses on, as you said, uh, utilitarian philosophy, mm. which emerges from the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who argued that what is ethically good is what s- serves the most number of people, brings the most happiness to most people. And one of his kind of disciples is, is, is a man you sp- spend a lot of time discussing, Henry Cole, who brought a lot of reforms to the, to the uh, society and also to the country at large. Uh, most notably was the spearheading of the Great Exhibition of 1851. This was an amazing exhibition of technologies from around the world housed in a, an awesome crystal structure in Hyde Park. It had many millions of visitors over the course of a few months. Um, What was the purpose of this absolutely gigantic event? And what did they kind of gain from this massive showcase of international industry and design?
2: Yeah, so there's actually a whole bunch of different things. I actually devote quite a few chapters in just trying to get into the details or just the context of what this extraordinary event was. So for Henry Cole personally, you know, this is I I like to characterize Henry Cole as being utilitarianism applied, right? That he has decided, you know, he's adopted these ideas fully. He's not a philosopher himself. He's not an intellectual, really. He has lots of ideas, though, for how to actually put these things into practice. And even beyond being a follower of Bentham, he's really a follower of Bentham's protégé, John Stuart Mill, because Mill kind of adds a softer edge to Bentham's very hard, rationalist way of doing things. He adds, you know, appreciation of beauty and aesthetics, whereas, you know, whereas I think Bentham is a bit more hardline, thinking, you know, these things are pointless and not all that that interesting. Um, Mill has this kind of more romantic sensibility, if you like, Um, and Cole is actually quite good friends with Mill um, early on in his life and heavily influenced by him. So Cole is involved with campaigns like Uh, The penny postage, so making the postal system much more fair, much more rational, um, much larger, much more systematic. Um, He's later on first using the society to get that patent reform through. But also, I mean, his actual big mission seems to be about aesthetics, that he wants to not just have the greatest good for the greatest number, but the greatest beauty for the greatest number. Nearly all of his projects that he has in the mid-19th century are in some shape or form about that. So for him, the Great Exhibition is an opportunity to spread good beauty, uh, good models of beauty, good design, good aesthetics to the masses. Right. If you can show them what beauty looks like, then you can raise their standards. It's a bit like, you know, um, people don't know what they want until they've seen it. Right. That's the kind of underlying philosophy that if you can display what's really great, then they're going to start to want to demand those things. But he gets mm-hmm. the idea of exhibitions and actually it has a bit of a prehistory at the Society of Arts. In some ways, he only gets involved with the Society of Arts to do to kind of take up the mantle of the kinds of exhibitions that they're holding. Because what had been happening is that you know during the Industrial Revolution, you've got Britain forging ahead in terms of industry, in terms of technology and other countries get worried about catching up with it, uh, particularly France. Right. France is the age old rival um, of the British and so since the 1790s, they start holding national exhibitions of industry. And these exhibitions, essentially, they take all of the manufactured, all of the top manufacturers from all over the country. The state pays for them to send in their inventions, to send in their manufacturers, to send in all of their best designs and put them all into one big building. Typically, Paris, I think. I think all of them are in Paris, actually, Um so that people can come and view all of these things in the same room. Manufacturers can see how their processes compare with those of different regions and they can up their game if they're behind. They can see who's ahead and get plaudits and awards and prizes. You know, they might be admitted to the legend on air, you know, or... And, and for consumers, this is a chance to see what the best designs are, to, to say, you know, why aren't our domestic or our local producers producing the sorts of stuff that's available on the other side of the country? And why don't we try to raise their, raise their game, create demand, um, raise consu- and educate consumer tastes in the process? So it becomes a kind of engine of catch-up growth or catch-up technological adoption um, compared to Britain. And by the 1840s, the British are actually getting a bit worried about this. And there's certain Mm. characters, people like Francis Wishaw, who is Secretary of the Society of Arts when um, he's brought in where it's kind of had declining membership, declining finances, and he's looking for ways to turn things around. And he, he gets very interested in the 1844 Paris exhibition and starts to get the society involved with potentially having a national exhibition of a similar kind for Britain so that it can maintain its technological lead. So that it can keep ahead. Because he's thinking, thing is, France has actually stayed ahead in terms of fashion. Um, but if it catches up in terms of manufacturing, you know, the actual power, you know, the the quality of the goods and the quality of its machines, then Britain's pretty screwed in terms of trade terms, because then France is both technologically advanced and has great fashion, whereas Britain <laughs> is technologically advanced but doesn't have the great fashion. Um, so he's looking at it in those sorts of terms and Cole gets brought in as part of some of the conversations that are going on around that now Wishaw leaves and goes and does other things and Cole is really the doer the mover the shaker who gets who 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 starts really putting together this 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 these new this idea of a national exhibition so they hold a bunch of exhibitions in the late, in the late 1840s to try and get these things going and he uses exhibitions for other ends as well there's exhibitions to celebrate living artists. You know, As a true utilitarian, there's no point having exhibitions of dead artists because the artist isn't going to appreciate it, right? The dead can't appreciate things, but the living artists might, so they start doing exhibitions to living artists. Um, they also have exhibitions of inventions, they have ex- smaller scale ones. And then at the 1849 um, exhibition, in, National Exhibition in Paris, they hear of an idea that's been bumping around amongst French officials which is why don't we have an international exhibition Um, and so they immediately take this idea and essentially use it to to pit them to it so that Britain can be first to do this thing and so the great Hmm. exhibition of the industry of all nations the great exhibition of 1851 famous for the crystal palace this huge glass building uh, the largest enclosed space on earth right Um, really showing off the technological prowess um, of, of the country The Great Exhibition is the brainchild of of Henry Cole in that respect. But he also taps into a bunch of other themes here, which is that in the mid-1840s, you'd had the free trade movement, where essentially, you know, since the 1810s, when you have the Corn Laws, which are propping up the price of grain to the benefit of the rich landlords who dominate Parliament, um, you start to see manufacturers who are having to pay higher wages because food is more expensive and also workers because they you know having to pay more for basic necessities starting to complain and starting to forge a coalition against the aristocrats a political coalition they they push initially for things like the great reform act in the, 18, the 1830s which expands the franchise but then even despite expanding the franchise even despite a lot of these manufacturing cities getting more votes um, they are able to shift Um, the political consensus fully in favour of free trade and lowering these tariff barriers on corn. And so you get the 1840s anti-corn law league, people like Richard Cobden and John Bright, who are especially famous leaders of it, pushing for the abolition of corners. And they have this big victory. Um, And one of the things that the Great Exhibition taps into is that, you know, actually Henry Cole was tapped to be one of the leaders of the anti-corn law league by Cobden, but he turns it down to do other things. Um one of the things he taps into to make the great exhibition happen is that they can't get government funding in the same way that they do in France. And so they need bottom-up subscriptions. They need a mass movement to draw upon, mm-hmm. to make this thing happen. And so he thinks, what a better way to do this than to really make it about free trade, right? Which mm-hmm. is that the great exhibition because it's of the industry of all nations. We can kind of, we can sell it as this kind of almost like an Olympics of industry where you have these competitions right. between different countries where rather than having a competition on the battlefield, you can have this peaceful competition of people trying to outdo each other in terms of their invention, in terms of their their manufacturing, their, their design um, and their, that kind of uh, prowess. And so he taps into the free trade movement and then also by extension, um, the free trade mo- movement is very aligned with the world peace movement, which is this, this idea that the more trade links you, you have, the... The, more, the, the, the less likely it is that those countries which have all these trade links will go to war. Uh, and so all of these different groups kind of impose their idea of what the Great Exhibition is all about. Although in the, in the process of actually trying to make it happen and getting all of the different approvals, some of those things get watered down a bit. Right? So Cole actually at one point kind of loses control of various bits of how the exhibition is being organised and then reasserts his, 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 the heavy hand of his control later on.
0: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, could you say a bit about the exhibition itself, just kind of the grandeur of it, just how massive an enterprise it is for people who maybe aren't aware, perhaps if you're listening to this and and you haven't really heard about the Great Exhibition, you can look up the images of this incredible Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, some of the amazing inventions, just the sheer number of people, the crowd size. Yeah, could you maybe paint a picture a bit of of what that what that event was like?
2: Yeah, I mean, people basically had never seen so many people in the same space together. Um, that seems to be the, the the main thing, the
0: heaving mass,
2: right? There's just so many people coming in, even per day, sometimes what's affecting the population of the entire towns are coming in through this building. Uh, and actually, they have all sorts of worries about that. One of the things the Society of Arts does, one of Cole's ideas is to do something about the London public toilet system, that there isn't one. That they should have public toilets and they should signpost these things. And they they had a little trial at the exhibition where they would pay the visitors would pay a small fee to use the toilets, and they they used that as an example of maybe we should implement this more broadly and generally in London because otherwise all these visitors, you know, the streets will will run yellow with urine if uh, mm-hmm. we don't do something about it. So there's the sheer number of people. So it's about six million people um, mm-hmm. attend over just the uh, over the course of just a few months uh in the middle of 1851 Um, i can't remember the dates i think it's first of may to october probably. Um, but just a few months in 1851 six million people um and you know to put that in context that's that's a very significant chunk of the population of britain although a lot of those people would have been repeat visitors because it was so popular people keep coming back so you've got all of the inventions you've got all of the you've got ancient antiquities you've got medieval art um you've got the stalls for each of the different countries trying to show off the best of their country you've got stuff brought in from india from various colonial british colonies um from canada you've got stuff um brought in by the americans by the french the germans um all of them trying to show off um you've got bits that are organized around raw materials you've got bits that are organized around design uh, you've got celebrity attractions like the koh you know, this gigantic diamond, although funnily enough, that's one where visitors are actually quite disappointed. They think it just looks like one massive block of glass.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, the, the great exhibition is just this, it, it is the event of, of, of that period um, and really sticks in people's imagination. And then all of the World's Fairs, which we've seen since then, have really just been successors to it. That mm. After this initial one, you know, immediately the French are saying, damn it, you know, we've really lost out to the British here in terms of the prestige. Let's have one in 1855. Then, you know, Britain organises another, actually the Society of Arts itself organises another one in 1862, which, funny enough, no one's ever heard of, really, but actually had more visitors than even the Great Exhibition of 1851. You know, it's, I think, 6.1 million. Um, but because it didn't, I mean, there were certain things that happened around that one that meant it wasn't quite as remembered. Um Prince Albert, who was the president of the Society of Arts, who was also very closely involved with the great exhibition, he dies that year. And so there's a kind of, you know, Queen Victoria doesn't actually visit um, publicly the 1862 one. And so there's a lot of things that sort of go wrong. There's, it's delayed by a year. It was meant to be on the 10th anniversary, but you have. There was a war in Italy. One of the Italian independence wars, and they thought it would drag on, but it didn't. And so they they cancelled things because they didn't want those two countries to feel awkward about um, coming to the exhibition. Um, So lots of things intervened. to be. But basically, the Society of Arts actually gets involved in a lot of these later uh, exhibitions as well, organizing often the British sections of the ones abroad or leveraging the exhibitions to have systematic reforms on a global level. Right. So, you know, it's at the 1851 exhibition that they, they use this opportunity. All of these people from all over the world, especially elites, right, scientific elites, mercantile elites, you know, all the merchants from all over the world are coming here to make their deals because they know that everyone's going to be there. Um, it's, you know, 1851 is also the I think it's when you have the first um, international chess tournament to coincide mm-hmm. with it, because they know that all of the people who are probably the top chess players are probably going to be visiting. Um, and also they use that as opportunity for things like International Postal Union. Um, that's one of the things the Society of Arts gets involved with as and of the conversations that happen um, during the exhibition. Unfortunately, that one isn't successful. But I mean, later on, I mean, nowadays you do have a Universal Postal Union. The same right. with trying to regularise telegraph rates. Um, the same when it comes to you know, the kinds of international movements for standardisation that we're so used to today you know, things like plugs or, you know, what side of the road that, that we, we drive on or, you know, all of these things that get standardized, those sorts of conversations only really start at the Great Exhibition. Maybe not in their specifics, but that's definitely one of the kind of the spirit of its legacy.
0: Yeah, incredible. I would definitely say that, I mean, the book is a, a narrative with that is well-paced, but if anything is the climax, uh, I would say that that is, uh, certainly as, as a reader, the most... Uh, exciting part for me to uh, to read about. And there's obviously much, much more in the book that we haven't been able to touch on today, including some wonderful uh, archival illustrations. Um, One interesting thing that I uh, learned about in the book as well is how in the aftermath, it seems, of this great exhibition and all of these events showcasing technology and industry and art, they kind of needed to put all this stuff somewhere. And it seems to me that a lot of the stuff ended up in South Kensington, which uh, Londoners or or people who have ever been a tourist in London will know as uh, the site of many um, massive and wonderful museums, the Victorian Albert Museum, the Science Museum, Natural History Museum. What is the relationship between the founding of those museums and the Society of Art in the mid to late 19th century?
2: I mean, really, this is not even the history of the Society of Arts, but the history of Henry Cole. There's a few chapters in the book that kind of become the story of Henry Cole. And <laughs> a part of that is because Henry Cole is such a dynamic figure. He, has, he puts his fingers into every pie and into every organisation that will suit his ends. So just like any treaty to the, terror, the, 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 the ends justif- sorry, the, yeah the ends justify the means. And so he will do anything to make these things happen, even if they're a bit dodgy, even if they're kind of semi-corrupt. Um, so what he does is he's, he's worried that the Great Exhibition will become an opportunity wasted, that you've had all these things collected together for the first time and that we, and that instead of being just a temporary effect, they should actually do something to make it a bit more permanent. And so he starts very quickly putting together a collection, buying, getting a bit of – he's a civil servant. So he's getting a bit of government money um, together to actually start put creating a collection out of some of the stuff that's been um, – drawn together to London um, in that in those few months and due to the success of the great exhibition he's then given quite a significant promotion which is that basically a new government department has invented for him and um, the department um, of what eventually becomes department of science and art um, he's forced to share it with the, with the science but he didn't really want that he just wanted it to be about design given his overriding mission but the department of science and art is essentially about continuing the legacy of the Great exhibition but also doing some of the things that that um, come out of it in terms of uh, uh, problems of policy right so one of the things that the utilitarian reformers like Cole do with the Great exhibition is they use it as an excuse to get certain reforms through um, they point to certain plate key ways in which britain seem to be falling behind the international competition and saying look we need to do x or y to try and catch up or at least stay ahead um, in certain respects and what they tend to do is they use it to really leverage educational reforms to leverage it when it comes to the creation of museums and library collections um, anything to do with the arts of peace right rather than the arts of war Um, so education museums design science art all of that becomes part of his mission and part of the thing that he oversees on the government's behalf. So what happens is that Great Exhibition is a huge success and it makes quite a significant profit. And so the Royal Commission of the Great Exhibition of 1851, which weirdly, for a Royal Commission, which is usually set up to investigate something, actually still exists as an organization overseeing that fund. What they do with the fund is that they buy a bunch of land in, a, in an area of London called Bropton. Um, and Henry Cole starts to put his collection there and starts to accumulate lots of other organizations, lots of other museums, all to be on this site. And he sets up a museum, which he calls the South Kensington Museum, which weirdly actually very unusually, right, given all of the type of city rebrands that pretty much always tend to fail. This one actually succeeds because the area that he places it in actually does become known as South Kensington as a result of the museum being called that. Kensington having been a much more upmarket address, effectively. You've got Kensington Palace um, quite nearby. And so it sounds a bit posher. He makes this whole area, what's now the Museum Mile, where you've got the Science Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is one of the successors or kind of morphed from um, the South Kensington Museum. Um, all of this collection that you 've got the uh, natural history museum, all of this collection agglomeration of museums is one of the things that Cole um, starts to do because he he sees it as being the hub for a museum or educational system of which you can then have spokes in different parts of the country, and you can send some of the stuff that 's not on display in the central hub out to different parts of the country to be displayed in local museums to regularize this system of essentially educating the masses. Right. So this is the the other part of what he's doing here is he wants a permanent place that working people in particular can come and they can be elevated in their consumer tastes. Uh, They can raise their game when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to self-education in general
0: we're going to now skip ahead probably 100 years. We need to leave something to the uh, to the reader and the listener's imagination and we can't cover the entire history here. Um but, uh, I I'm I, there's so many things that the society of arts has had a minor hand in or some member has had a hand in. I'm looking here at my list and I see the um, introduction of the standardized testing that would become the the GCSEs and so many uh, fantastic inventions, but i 'm not going to mention i 'm going to resist the temptation because we we are i want to be mindful of the time and I want to talk a bit about the twentieth century we're stuck in the nineteenth but it seems that the 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 way you describe it it feels as though the society has a bit of a lull in um um in in that period kind of in the early uh tw- early and mid twentieth century, but it seems to really kind of revitalize just as Prince Albert was such a staunch supporter of uh, its efforts in the mid 19th century. It seems that uh, Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth II, Duke of Edinburgh, was uh, really a, a, a large supporter of the Society of Arts in the mid 20th century. I think at one point you quote him as saying, This is my society, you know, my RSA or something like that. Prince Philip, refer- so involved was he in its goings on. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about. How the society maybe rebranded itself or found uh, a new place for itself um, in the mid 20th century with the growth of the environmentalism and the conservation movement in particular.
2: Yeah. So Prince Philip, you know, when he gets involved with the Society of Arts, it's just after Queen Elizabeth II becomes queen. So she had actually been president of the Society just before that because it becomes a bit of a thing that the heir to the, they try to find a royal to be the president because it's just an honorary, um, an honorary uh, post. But actually yeah. Prince Philip is, you know, he's a young man and he's looking for things to do and, and looking for things to become involved with. And so the Society of Arts or the RSA by that stage, it gets the royal since in 1908. Um, it becomes one of the ways in which he can do things. Um, and one of the things that he's very interested in is conservation. He gets very interested in birds in particular when he's often off on the Royal Yacht Britannia going, going around the world for one of the Olympic Games uh, tours and gets very interested in watching birds, I think, near Antarctica. And then gets, falls in with a bunch of other people who are involved with uh, people like Peter Scott, who was one of the founders of the World Wildlife Fund. Um he's Peter Scott's actually the person who comes up with that really famous panda logo, um, and a whole bunch of other characters who are involved in wildlife preservation, wildlife conservation. Um and what happens is that there's an event in um in 1963 where essentially it's a, a nature conservation week, and a bunch of these organizations try to put together an exhibition. Um, where they can showcase what the kinds of things they've been doing and trying to bump up the numbers of people who will pay for conservation, you know, the, the, the donors to it. Conservation really wasn't a big thing um, in terms of the, the numbers of people involved. Um, and Prince Philip at this meeting, at this, at this exhibition, he asked, you know, do all of you people know each other? Do, do you all talk to one another? And the surprising answer is no. And so he, well, he, he asks the people involved, you know, why don't you organize a conference to actually bring together all of these people, you know, to actually talk about the issues they face, talk about all the conservation issues, maybe bring in um, landowners who actually control the land that you're worried about in terms of nationalized industries or industrialists or, um, you know, government depart- officials who control all the land that has these conservation issues and let's bring them all together. At the same time, you've also got the publication of books like Silent Spring, which famously showed that uh, DDT was showing up in uh, human breast milk in California, where you start to get a bit of a worry about environmental impact actually impacting humans. And so when you get these conferences that are organized under Prince Philip's aegis, Right, You've got one in 1963, one in 1965, and one in 1970, and they're called the countryside in 1970. Right? They were aiming for 1970 to be able to show that they'd done certain things by that by that year. Um, and in the process of those conferences, a new conception starts to emerge of what we now call the environment. Right? If you were an environmentalist in 1960, that probably meant that you were someone who thought that nurture rather than nature was important in the upbringing of children right their their environment was what rather than their genes was what led to their outcomes the idea of environmentalism as we think of it today to do with conservation you know the planet sustainability that emerges from these conferences uh, or at least kind of alongside them because all of these people are talking to one another you know you've got the people for conservation of wetlands and birds and, and bees um, uh, and this particular species, all of them talking and actually finding commonalities, finding common problems that they think need solving. You've got problems of pollution, problems of air pollution, water pollution. Um, you've got problems of various other types of environmental degradation. Um, and they start to see patterns and they start to see how all of these things are potentially connected. And increasingly, they also start to worry about not only is this about that this is not only about The conservation of the species that they just happen to like, you know, because they're fans of this bird or they just like looking at pandas. Um, But actually that maybe these issues will have an impact on human survival as well. So the idea of environmentalism starts to emerge from it and then has an impact abroad as well. So a lot of the people who are at these conferences end up being part of a delegation on conservationist issues in the United States. They're invited to, to present to the White House Um, They lobby the European community to designate um, 1970, uh, basically, conservation year, natural conservation year. Um, And then you also get an impact on what happens in Britain in that you've got the 1968 Countryside Act, which is a direct result of the kinds of conversations that they were having at these conferences, You get in 1970, you've got the foundation of the Department of the Environment, the Prime Minister, Ted Heath, actually speaks at the conference. Um, It's the first year in which the population actually in polling in that election year registers the environment as being an issue that they're concerned about. Um, And it's also in the 1970s that you start to see all of these other organisations, so the very early predecessors to the Green Party, um, as well as things like Friends of the Earth, And uh, Greenpeace and all these other more activist organisations emerging um, a bit later on. So the Society of Arts, interestingly, not even in a kind of direct way, but as a kind of in a convening way, seems to give birth to the British environmentalist movement. And with Prince Philip having this role in nudging it in the right direction, and then later on, you know, from the nineteen seventies, he hopes to continue some of that work. And so there's a sort of Environment Committee of of the RSA which he which he personally chairs sometimes you know in getting these people people like David Attenborough to come to Buckingham Palace where they'll have a meeting and what's interesting is we don't really know a lot about what happens there but from my under, from what I've been able to tell you know sometimes you've got pretty big industrialists you know being basically told off by Prince Philip where the kind of royal um, the royal impact is having, I guess, a kind of more private impact on some of these larger companies to try to keep them to task. But it's difficult to measure that impact, I think, uh, more broadly.
0: I'm reminded of a Saturday Night Live skit where (laughs) I think Fred Armisen and Bill Hader play the king and queen and as soon as you know the royal guard and the 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 cameras leave the room they get the cockney accents and they tell off i think <laughs> um, uh, uh, princess kate you know marrying william it's like uh, uh, i so i'm imagining if if the listeners have seen this saturday night live skit they'll know what i mean i'm imagining this event where uh, well, you know um industrialists visit buckingham palace and are told off by uh, prince philip to be a to be a similar act of uh, shedding all decorum. Am I correct in remembering that the word sustainability itself comes from uh, the RSA, or it's it was added to the Oxford English Dictionary on the basis of a use by the RSA?
2: Yeah, so the first recorded use of it in an environmental context was at an RSA event. But it, So it's basically just happens at one of the conferences um, that they hold around those issues. So it's an, an invited speaker um, uses it in that way. And so the RSA's journal, because they would Literally word for word, give the full transcription of speeches and often um the the, the QA afterwards, the question answers answer afterwards. Um sustainability in that sense, I think I think the first one recalled by the Oxford English Dictionary is is from one of its events.
0: Very impressive. Um we can cover maybe maybe one final thing, uh is that my first introduction personally to the RSA, and I think this will be probably the case for many people, is through their animated videos. That's probably the first time I ever even encountered that acronym or heard of the organization is through this RSA Animate, uh, which were these kind of illustrations of TED Talks. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about maybe how those came up, why they were such a, a, a popular sensation, and how they maybe fit into the broader picture of what the organization is doing now in the 21st century to kind of stay current and stay relevant.
1: Yeah, so
2: these came out of um, what they were invented by a guy called Andrew Park, who was doing whiteboard animations live for events um, where often you would have uh, a speaker and then he would animate the speaker as they were talking. And they decided, you know, actually, why don't we video these things? Why don't we have short videos where actually the first ones, they put the camera on his shoulder and as he's writing, as as he's drawing these animations of the talk, you would it would be in real time, and then they would speed it up so it would fit within a the, the actual drawing bit, so it would fit within you know a, a few minutes. And these become a huge internet sensation—you know, absolutely millions of views on on YouTube—and they continue to do them today. Um, and it's a kind of interesting like a case, I guess, where unlike a lot of the other societies' earlier um, projects, you've got you have got artists you've got people innovating around it and coming up with new ways to promote the uh, the RSA's mission so a lot of what it does today I mean one way to characterize it's become a sort of think tank whether it does reports it does research but it also has that convening role which became so useful um, with with the the conservation movement Um, it also invites lots of speakers often with you know bit more radical ideas and to present them and, and they try to promote those ideas and get a bit more of a conversation going around them through that that medium. As actually, Andrew and I uh, worked together on a huge mural um, of the society's history um, that's in its coffee house. And I guess when the coronavirus is over, people will hopefully be able to go and visit it and look at this um, eleven-meter mural showing, you know, in a kind of jokey, kind of cartoony and light sense, um, some pretty important and, and, and deep themes that mm-hmm. I hope people will find in the book.
0: Maybe people can't really do this now, maybe if they're walking around London, but where actually is physically the RSA? Where was it founded and where is it today? Those are the same place. Uh, and what is the significance of maybe its location within London and even the architecture, the way the building uh, actually was, was, was constructed?
2: Yeah, so initially they have just meetings in a coffee house, Rothmull's Coffee House um, in Covent Garden, Henrietta Street, Covent Garden. The building sadly no longer exists for that, though there's a plaque that you can see um, where it kind of shows where they had that meeting. And after that, they would meet at various you know, people's houses, um, at coffee houses, at taverns, depending on, on what happened. Then they started trying to look for more... Per- you know, As they the membership gets larger, they start to look for bigger venues they can use. And then in the 1770s, they get an opportunity to actually have a purpose-built building. And Robert Adam, or the Adam brothers, the people who... Part of the people, some of the people who introduce neoclassicism to British architecture, as members of the society, they get involved and they create a purpose-built building um, for the Society of Arts, where it's been ever since. So since 1774, all the way to the present day, it's been based there. So you've got the Great Room with these huge murals, um, or not murals; they're actually paintings, although they're, they're the size pretty much of the wall. Um, by the artist James Barry, showing the progress of human civilization, and they've kind of got an Olympic-themed bit under which you would a procession under which you'd have the have originally had the prize-givings, um, really to underscore the kind of the I guess the magnitude of the prizes that are being awarded. Uh, you'd have had the repository downstairs where all of the models, all of the art that had been submitted and won prizes could be seen by people visiting throughout the year. You'd have had people actually living within the building. The secretary had the kind of apartment buildings next to it, um, so that you know it's a, a working building, uh, and that's where it's been ever since. And so it's 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 just off the Strand, um, in John Adams Street, so right in the bustling centre of London, quite quite close to uh, where the I mean, very close to the riverfront.
0: Well, I hope that uh, when such things are permitted, people uh, will will be able to to pay a visit, maybe attend events or just see some of the, uh, some of the art and the architecture and, uh, hopefully read your book as well. So they can kind of contextualize a lot of that and, um, what's going on there. Well, uh, we're wrapping up now. I'm wondering if there's anything, uh, final things about the society of arts or, um, about this book that, uh, you would like to add maybe in summary, um, about its role in the past, today, or maybe your experience doing this uh, 300 years of research on this unique institution?
2: Yeah, I'd say the interesting thing about it is that, you know, if there's a theme that I noticed throughout the book, and I hope is also a kind of inherent message in it, um, you know, the dedication in the book is to the public spirited, uh, right? Because uh, maybe that sounds a little bit cheesy, but for me, a lot of what really came out of it was that very small groups of people or even individuals can have quite a significant impact in a very bottom up way, you know, without becoming politicians and getting all sorts of power. But just creating institutions like the Society of Arts or doing projects using these, these institutions that allow for ideas to kind of surface from the bottom up and to actually become something. You know, it's astonishing that someone like Henry Cole, for example, could create the great exhibition without it being a government project. Um, but just using this essentially voluntary society or that, you know, Prince Philip's involved in the 1960s, but there's also a bunch of other people who use the society and for their own projects. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the really interesting things is that it really shows the way in which people can set things up themselves, the initiative that they can take to make, to make the world a better place, to improve it. Um, and one of the interesting things since the publication is that, you know, I've had a few people get in touch saying, asking me about what would what would a modern day RSA based on, you know, in its first hundred years or let's say in the 1850s look like today? What, what kinds mm. of things would it would it be doing? What kind of lessons can we learn from the kinds of projects um, that they have been doing? And I hope readers of it will also, I mean, there's so many projects we haven't even touched upon, which were you know, have whole chapters devoted to them. Of course. Um, as well as all the ones that have like a page or two, because there's just <laughs> so much, uh, going on, trying to draw it together was this real challenge. But I hope that there'll be a lot to inspire people to do things today. In that,
0: yeah, absolutely. I was definitely in reading this book inspired by the, as you say, the the spirit of of public mindedness. This desire to um, find room for improvement in absolutely everything and make sure that things are working. Ah, uh, for the benefit of the people. and it was it was quite moving to see kind of uh, this this egalitarian, uniquely democratic institution that was kind of dedicated to these ideals from such an uh, early time, maybe in Britain's uh, industrial history, and also the way you masterfully wove together the entire history. So, I hope that the uh, the listeners appreciate arts and minds, how the Royal Society of Arts changed the nation. Um, Anton Howes, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you.
2: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.